For some of you, it's your first time. For others, it is not. But for today, I would like to welcome you all to Epic Realms. Hello, hello, friends and enemies, heroes and villains. Welcome to Epic Realms. Our guest today has worked for some of the most popular board games out there, including Arkham Horror, Mansions of Madness, and Star Wars Empire vs. Rebellion. Uh, they're a board game designer of great renown. Welcome, Nikki Valens, to the show. Thank you very much for joining us. Yeah, of course. Thanks for having me on. Yeah. I, so I read that your background started with video game design. Is that correct? It is, in fact, correct. I went to school for video game design, uh, and then switched over to doing board games. What kind of what? There's different stuff for uh, video game design, is there not? Like, in different sections, what kind of stuff did you work on? So my degree actually covers pretty much everything that goes into making a video game, uh, whether that's you know the programming or the animation or the modeling or the textures. Okay. Uh, I know how to do basically all of it. I won't say that I'm good at all of it, but. I know at least the basics of all of it, um, but yeah, uh, there's a lot of a lot of good stuff in there that carries over to to analog games and role playing games and other things as well. Awesome. How did that branch over into board games then? The the types of games that I really like to play and create are all like cooperative games and games that you get to play with other people, like and just kind of hanging out together. And I wasn't getting as many opportunities to do that style of a game in video game design as I wanted. Uh, and there was more opportunities for that in board game design. So okay. I decided to j kind of jump into a different media and create something that I could, you know, play with people around a table uh, in person with. Yeah. Did you enjoy playing uh, anything specific, you know, getting into that? Was there something that just really was like, this is a game, I really want to do this because of, you know, this game or that game? Um, there wasn't, like, any specific game, like, board game that I was playing that I wanted to make something like that. Okay. Uh, it was more of just kind of the overall experience of being able to hang out with your friends, your family, or whoever else, and be able to play the game together and have that more social experience Yeah. as opposed to these sort of single-player uh, experiences that you get with a lot of video games, especially a lot of the video games that were coming out uh, at the the time that I switched over. Right. I saw that the uh, there was a interview that you had done that said that you had started kind of professionally doing board games in 2013. Is that is, was that right? Yeah, that's when I uh, started at FFG. Okay. How long did you work there over at Fantasy Flight? Um, just over five years. Yeah, that would be about right. Just okay. over five years. Okay. What, what is, so we've had a handful of other, you know, game company people here, whether they're designers mm -hmm. or owners, 
Uh, but a lot of them aren't the size and scope of a place like Fantasy Flight. So what kind of things, was there a lot of like having to jump through hoops to get 30,000 people to check off on things or what was kind of their process over there? Um, yeah, a little bit. It's, it's definitely more uh, structured than you would think of like freelance design going or even much smaller publishers doing mm -hmm. their, like how they do their, their projects. Um, a lot of the, uh, the vast majority of the projects that I worked on at FFG were sort of, you know, somebody high above me that was making decisions decided like what games were going to get made and then would sort of just assign people to them. Um, so there wasn't actually that many opportunities for me to uh, sort of pitch my own games or decide like what I wanted to work on um, beyond maybe deciding between like one or two projects or like, sorry, two or three projects that I could potentially work on in the near future and then just picking one that's like, I think that one makes the most sense for me to do. Right. Um, so a lot of the the games that I did uh, were more of, you know, projects that just kind of came down the pipeline and then I worked on them as opposed to games that I came up with the concepts for them and then pitched them. Uh, the notable exception is Legacy of Dragonhold was mm -hmm. one that I had actually gotten to like pitch and make the game fully from my own vision. Nice. And that was that one through Fantasy Flight? Yeah, Dragonhold okay. is is a Fantasy Flight game. Okay. It's, it's there's so many games out there that it's like I can't I can I honestly say like I've played a lot of games. I've played a lot of the games that you've worked on, but it's hard to say I've played on every game <laughs> that everybody's worked on. Mm -hmm. Um so I wasn't quite sure, but it looks great from from what I've seen. Uh, it looks really cool. The, the cover alone uh, for that one is amazing. Actually, all of all of the covers for all of them that I see that you've worked on are have some amazing, amazing art. Uh, real quick, and and, I, and I'm you know we talked about this on the side. We don't need to drudge over all of the crazy things. But you kind of worked on like the Cthulhu esque games. Was that one of those ones mm -hmm. that kind of just came down the pipeline? And they're like, here, do these Arkham Horror stuff expansion eldritch horror expansions mansions of madness was that just kind of thrown at you or is it one of those that you were excited to kind of work on uh it's definitely one of ffg's like perennial ips mm -hmm. so you know they're constantly making these games um when i first started uh eldritch like the the very early concepting stuff of what eldritch horror would be kind of already existed so when i started at ffg they kind of just assigned me to that Okay. and went, okay, here, work with this. Um, I didn't really know that much about the Cthulhu mythos jumping okay. into it. I did a whole ton of research and reading yeah. uh, in that first year with them. Um, but yeah, I, I was able to lend a lot of my expertise and the things that I know about game design in the design of Eldritch Horror and make it uh, a lot of what it actually is, what it turned out to be, that is. Um, and then... Uh, I just continue to work on each of its expansions and continue to refine and design out that, uh, like that whole game and all of its expansions and everything. Mm -hmm. And then, yeah, like you said, uh, other things that they wanted to do sort of came along. Like they knew they wanted to make a new Mansions of Madness at some point. Mm -hmm. um, and when the idea of it kind of came up and like, what would we want to do with it? The idea of using 
a, a digital component with it, an app came up. And that was one of the main reasons that they first looked at giving it to me. Like aside from just having worked on okay. Ultra it was also like I had that experience already of working with digital right. games. Um, so I was able to, you know, very quickly jump onto that project and just kind of vision out like, okay, this is what I would do if you wanted me to design this game. And this is how I would utilize a digital component. Um, and they liked my version of, of what that game would look like. So they, they went with it. Nice. Nice. Do you see a lot of comparisons being from, you know, kind of being in both worlds when, you know, doing the video game stuff and then having it translate to the board games? Uh, yeah, I mean, a lot of core game design concepts are the same and they carry over, which is why, you know, learning how to make video games and, and all of that it translated very well into board games. Like I got to carry over most of my knowledge. Okay. Um, and uh, there, there's, especially for games with digital components, there's so many aspects of what I learned that I get to use extra. Like I get to use all my programming knowledge and, you know, just thinking about timing and how to user interfaces work and how people interact with components and, and whatnot. Um, I'm very big on having the user interface of a game be very uh, accessible and intuitive. Okay. Uh, and that carries into the analog, I think a lot more than most people would assume it does. So in the same way that I would want someone to be able to understand the controls and the UI they're seeing in a video game very quickly. Right. I want people to understand the tokens and the board and the cards and like how they're manipul physically manipulating the components of a game yeah, intuitively. That, that's a great comparison. When you are, are going through and doing those, do you, um, do you find that you try to make the games a, a the ones that you do for your for yourself, because you do freelance stuff uh, now, mm -hmm. do you find that you want to you want to do more games where it's like co-op or people playing against each other or you know everybody's by themselves and they're trying to get the most points? Is there a certain type of game that you kind of lean into more than others? Uh, yeah, I tend to do co-op games. Almost all of the games that I've ever done are co-op games, and uh, I also tend to prefer games that can tell some form of story. Okay. Um, usually those are character-based stories if they're things that I have the most creative control over. So if you think of like, I guess you haven't played Dragon Holt, but Dragon Holt is a very narrative-heavy game. It's okay. sort of a, I, I took a lot of things I learned from video game design as well as a love of uh, game books, like, you know, choose your own adventure style yeah. of books yeah. and sort of combined those two, you know, experiences that I have to create something that feels very intuitive when you're playing that you're, you feel like you're a part of the game. You feel like your choices actually matter and they affect the world around you mm -hmm. um, as opposed to, you know, just making choices that affect you as a character, but not the rest of the game world. I wanted it to feel like you're a part of that actual world. Okay. Um, so that was a big, a big thing that I focused on in Dragonhold, for instance. Do you get turned away from games that don't necessarily fit that? Like if somebody comes up to you, say a company says, "Hey, I want to work on, I want you to work on this game we have," and it's not that kind of a game. Will you just are you the kind of person who'll say like, "Yeah, not interested," or is it more of, "Yeah, I'll give it a shot"? 
Uh, yeah, I mean, I in the same way that I'll give any game at least one play to kind of see what it's doing and, and research it, yeah. uh, I'll consider most designs. Like, just because I enjoy making story games and co-op games doesn't mean that I won't work on, you know, a competitive game or a game that's less story-driven than uh, something like Dragonhold or right. Eldritch is, because those are very... There's a lot of writing and, and story in those. Yeah. But something like Quirky Circuits, for instance, is there's not much story there, really. It's kind of just like enough theme on top of it to to give you a little idea of what's happening. But then it's much more focused on the mechanics. Yeah. Well, let's talk about Quirky Circuits, because that's... that's <laughs> I've seen the game, and it, it just looks adorable. And it's a... You're basically guiding little robots to help them do their jobs, right? Yeah, exactly. Uh, it started out with, so I really like programming games, um, like action programming games. And something that bothered me is I didn't feel like I had access to a good, uh, like friendly cooperative yeah. um, programming game. Mm -hmm. So I decided to just kind of set out and be like, what would, what would it look like if I made one of those? Right. Um, that's kind of the seed that I started with. And I tried a lot of different things and eventually kind of landed on uh, what it what quirky circuits actually is, where it's it's a little bit chaotic. there's there's more strategy to it than a lot of people give it credit for. Mm -hmm. but there is that level of um, kind of nervous energy and chaos and hilarity that will ensue from, you know, not being able to perfectly control what these robots are doing right. because it is a a limited communication game. So yeah. like, even though, or, or rather, even if everyone playing it knew what the perfect strategy was, there's still chances for miscommunications and making right. mistakes. And uh, even in a group that's like really well experienced playing the game, those moments of like making mistakes and having something go completely wrong is part of the fun of the game. Like. It, it's just kind of interesting to see kind of what happens, whether you're succeeding or failing in that game. Right. It's for those that, you know, might not have played it or don't know it, uh, but do play a lot of board games. If you've ever played Robo Rally, it's really similar to that, right? Except for your, mm -hmm. everybody doesn't get their own. And I could be wrong, but I, from what I understand, everybody doesn't get their own robot. Everybody has the same robot and they're all helping working for the same robot, right? It's yeah, exactly. So, uh, yeah, it's Roborelli was one of the inspirations for it. Um, but in this case, you're you're working together to control a single robot. Uh, you essentially each player has a hand of cards that are just really basic actions like turning right or turning left or moving forward a little bit, and everyone's kind of taking turns putting cards into uh, a queue of like these different actions that are going to occur. Uh, but you don't. You don't really know what other cards people have played. You're putting the cards in face down. So the only information that you're getting is on the back of the card. It'll say like if it's a movement or if it's a turn or if it's some other kind of special action. Mm -hmm. uh, so you kind of have to make some judgments about like, okay, so what have the other players done that they think is the correct thing to do right now? Um, and sometimes the best play isn't available to you because you might not have the cards that you need or the cards that you do need might be locked in someone's hand and they're not able to play them at that specific moment for whatever reason. Right. 
So you have to um, sort of work around and figure out what the best strategies with your given cards are. And you have to be able to tell without communicating with the other players when they're changing the immediate goal or the immediate strategy that you're going for uh, to move on to like the next best option, essentially. Yeah. So there's there's a a certain level of like empathizing with the other players and being able to understand what they're trying to do mm -hmm. that allows you to really unlock the strategy of the game. Right. And this comes, so the little boards, they come in like a spiral, like a spiral notebook. Uh, mm -hmm. What was the inspiration of having say the spiral notebook, as opposed to having, you know, just a cardboard, a flat piece of cardboard or, a, you know, a bunch of foldouts or, or handouts. Uh, it's to make the game just a little bit faster and easier to play. Okay. So each level, you have a specific challenge of what you're trying to do. And the setup for the game is very quick because you can just open that spiral-bound book to a page and the map is already there set up for you and the rules are all there on the, the facing page. Okay. So you know what you're supposed to do because it says it right there. Uh, and you can just kind of you know, set your, your robot mini right there onto the map and you get to start playing right away. And then once you're done with that level, you can just turn the page and you're on to the next level. You don't have to like set up extra little um, maps, map boards or anything like that. You just get to keep playing. What, uh, what was it that, did they come to you to build this game or did you cut them up with a game design and go to a, a company to have them do it? Uh, this the... one was, Go ahead. yeah, Quirky Circuits was fully of my own design. Okay. Um, so I just had that idea of, like, I want a cooperative action programming game. And I just started workshopping a bunch of different ideas. And once I had landed on something that felt really good to play, uh, I just kind of brought it to some different publishers to see, you know, what different people were thinking of it. And when I brought it to Plaid Hat, they really, really liked it. Uh, so we we worked out a deal and they've, they've published it and I think it looks great. Yeah, it does. <laughs> they, they did really good work on all of the art and everything. <laughs> the art is just a, adorable. <laughs> I don't have no another word for it. Adorable is the only word I can think of for the cover. I was like, Oh, that's so awesome. <laughs> uh, what is the process of something like that when you're going to, you know, because a lot of the game designers we have on, they work for a specific company or they own whatever the company is. So when mm -hmm. you've got a game, and, and I know that there's, you know, hundreds of people out there that's like, I've designed a game, but I don't know what to do with it, or they're, they want to kickstart it, but they don't know what to do. Um, what is the process of going to all these different companies? Do you just, like, send them a picture? Do you send a, have to send them, like, a play test kit for them to try and play test it? Uh, obviously, you've got a background in games, so, like, your name is known, so you, you, know, you know what you're doing. But even for you, there's got to be some sort of, weird process you have to go through for something like that uh yeah so typically you would you know you, you make your game uh you've probably got a, a prototype of it that you're able to play test and you know know that you have something good that's that's worth showing people uh, in a lot of cases you would make something that's called a sell sheet or a, a one sheet that's essentially your elevator pitch right. for what this game is and why someone would be interested in it okay um and that's typically something you would send to a publisher to see if they're interested. Uh, if you are able to go to 
uh, different game conventions like Gen Con or something like that. You can also, you know, reach out to publishers in advance and see if you can set up a time to meet with them and be able to show it to them directly. Um, different publishers will have different amounts of time that they dedicate to that type of a thing at each con, um, but most publishers are taking some amount of time out of their their day at conventions to hear pitches and try to, you know, uh, sign on some new games. Um, of course, I have the added benefit of because I was working at FFG for five years. A lot of people already know who I am, right? So it was it's quite a bit easier for me to just reach out to a, a publisher that I'm interested in and be able to just say, say, hey, I've got a game I want to show you. When when can we do that? Right. And we'll find a time one way or another, whether that's at a convention or playing it online somehow via like a, a tabletop simulation type of software or something like that. Right. And I'm assuming, speaking of tabletop, this tabletop simulator, and I think there's one or two others that are very similar to tabletop simulator. How does that, mm -hmm. how does that catch you? Do you enjoy using that? Obviously with the video game background, I'm assuming it's a little bit easier for, for yourself to work with that than a lot of other people, because you kind of understand, you know, the game design. It's a very different environment for sure. Um, it's, they, they tend to be a lot more clunky than you expect them to be. Mm -hmm. um, it turns out that you don't really think about it, but your fingers have a lot of good dexterity for doing things like rolling dice and manipulating cards. Uh, and when you lose all of that to just a mouse with a right and a left click, uh, you you lose a lot of the dexterity that you would normally have with componentry. Right. Uh, so it, it's often a little bit clunky. It usually takes a little bit longer to play games that way. But putting them together in one of those programs is not that much different than how I build prototypes in physical. Like I'm still making the the print files and everything else. Okay. It's just instead of physically actually printing them out on a printer, I'm, you know shoving them into this digital software. Is that primarily, especially with the, with the pandemic and everything, is that primarily the, the way you've been going about playtesting or do you have like close friends that you can get together with the playtest games? Uh, it's both. Since okay. the pandemic, I've definitely been using uh, simulator software more to, to do my pitches and to build my prototypes just because it's easier to find playtesters right. uh, at this point through through online means, uh, but uh, pre-pandemic and especially while I was at FFG, it was a lot easier to just, you know, actually make a physical prototype of it and then be able to find people in person to right. uh, play with. Because especially while I was at FFG, you have access to everyone else in the studio who's can take a little bit of time out of their day to play test. Or right. uh, there's a lot of uh, board game players in this area that we're in that yeah. would be willing to come in and play test at the uh, compensation of, hey, we'll pay for your dinner and stuff like that. Right. Or even just go into the, you know, the little gamer hall there and grab a couple people that might be interested. That kind of stuff, too, I'm assuming is is helpful to our local conventions, things like that. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Well, we'll get I, I do want to come back to the quirky circuits because I know you've got um, other stuff coming out with it, but mm -hmm. after Quirky Circuits, you came out with the Adventure Tactics Side Quest Guidebook. Did I get all that right? 
Uh, well, it's just one of the the quests in that uh, side book. They basically did a bunch of. Okay. Uh, they had a bunch of guest designers do different adventures for the for adventure oh, okay. tactics, and I was one of those guest designers. Yeah. I see. See, when I saw that, I was like, they did this entire booklet. That's really cool. No, no, just 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 one of them. <laughs> uh, well, still with that, what what is that? Is that just a uh, uh, like just extra encounters and stuff for the adventure tactics game? Yeah, yeah. So adventure tactics is uh, like it says an adventure tactics game um, with a, a an emphasis on character customization and character uh, like growth over time. Okay, uh, it's very very inspired by stuff like Final Fantasy Tactics um, oh, esque okay. mechanics. Uh, so they, I've been in contact with them and I've done play testing with them and they've play tested my games and stuff before. So when they were looking for guest designers to just kind of make some extra content for Kickstarter and whatnot, they reached out to me to see if I wanted to make a, a scenario for them. And I put one together to see if what they thought and they, they liked it. So there it is. Excellent. Excellent. Uh, so your recent, more recent game, uh, Artisans of Splendid Veil. Splendent Veil. Mm-hmm. That that's a huge looking game. That looks like it's a it's a campaign game, correct? It is. Yes, it's it's a very large game. Um, it will take many hours to play through. <laughs> uh, I think we ended up with probably over an average of 50 hours to okay. play through the whole campaign. Okay. When you're building that game, are you, are you a sole designer in that or were there other designers working with you? Um, sole designer, but not sole like creative member on the right. team. We had lots right. of other writers and consultants and like, of course, all of the artists and everything else. Okay. So your concept of, not your concept of, uh, your, when you're looking at games, what are your thoughts on a game like that where it's, you know, it's a long campaign type game and the game is kind of permanently changes based on your, what you decide to do. What are your thoughts on um, those kind of games? Obviously you've designed one, but. Yeah. Do you, do you mean like legacy games specifically or? Just yeah. 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 Games? Yeah. Just, just overall the, the legacy type games where, where you're doing stuff like that. Uh, because you know they obviously yeah. games like Gloomhaven have come out and stuff like that, and some people, you know, some people have different thoughts on that. And I just wanted, obviously, like I said, obviously you've designed one, uh, but I just kind of wanted to get your overall thoughts on those games in general. Right. Uh, I tend to think of legacy elements in games kind of the same way that I think of digital elements in games. Okay. Um, like I don't, I don't really think of legacy as being a genre of game, for instance. So, okay, what legacy elements and legacy components can bring to a game is just sort of this whole extra category of different mechanics and experiences that you might be able to bring into a design. In the same way that having a digital component gives you access to a lot of um, different design space that you wouldn't normally have. Okay, so I think. Overall, legacy components are, you know, they're not going to be right for every game design um, that you're doing, but they can certainly lend a lot to different things. And in this case, in Dragon, not Dragonhold, sorry, in Artisans of Splendid Vale, um, I'm using them to add a lot of character growth and storytelling moments. 
So in Artisans, you play as these four characters who are working together to, you know, explore the Vale and gather different resources and go on adventures and whatnot. And the uh, the legacy elements to them are things like permanently enhancing your characters through gaining new skills, um, but also through uh, finding or creating for yourself new armor and clothing and other accessories and things. So there's also an element of like cosmetically and upgrading your characters over the course of the campaign, and which includes uh, like being able to apply little character uh, like clothing stickers to your character art uh, in the game to kind of customize your your look of your character. And those come with mechanics with them as well. So there's like extra stickers that you put on your sheet that's like, okay, now I have this ability that's here. Or you might upgrade uh, a weapon or some other tool at some point, and there's literally just a sticker that you apply to that card that overwrites the previous ability that has with a slightly better ability or a different... Um, effect that you now have access to or something like that how detailed are the you know the characters and the characters individual stories in in there um very detailed uh with artisans especially so it's a very character driven narrative this the entire campaign is i mean there's a lot there and there's a lot of story happening but it's always through the perspective of these four characters that you get to play as um to the point that you have options available to you that are specific to your characters. So where Dragonholt is like a like a choose your own adventure, but enhanced by everything we've learned since Choose Your Own Adventures first came out. Yeah. Um, Artisans is everything I learned from Dragonholt plus a bunch of other like character story telling moments that I've figured out over the course of the rest of my career. <laughs> uh, so in, in Dragonholt, there's, there's one narrator, there's one book and there's one narrator reading from that book and telling you the story in artisans. Every character has a book. Okay. So you and me playing the game together, I have my book and you have yours and we'll read some of the story together, but we'll also, individually have um you know unique text within our books that only i would be able to see in my book or that only you would be able to see in your book and that includes uh options that are available to you that aren't available to anyone else as well as like even complete side conversations and mini adventures between two characters or between a character and any given one of the others or that you might go on on your own even okay so there's there's a lot of really exploring who these characters are and how they see the world and being able to explore that world through their perspective. And exploring the world, they I saw that it's very it's got a very good sandbox element to it. Is that accurate? Uh yeah, it's it's kind of got an open world thing going on in that there's a map of the actual veil that you have. Um, and as you are going on these adventures or you're, you know, interacting with different things in the city, uh, you'll unlock new places that you can go and explore. And you're actually, you actually write those in on the map. It'll say like, okay. oh, we, now we can go to um, the Karimi Library and it's at, you know, 
C4 on the map or whatever it is, and you like find that spot on the map and you like write in the name of it and any other information that you need. Um, so you can actually, uh, at the beginning of it, you kind of have this, this big open map of the Vale that is like ready to be explored. And by the end of the campaign, you've written in all of these different locations all over that map that you've gone to. And uh, you have this whole big long adventure log record of everything that you've done and what you've found together. So I have a question for you about, about that and about the characters. So when it's, when you can go, you know, to a handful of different places, uh, and there are so many different characters that you have, is there, if say, say you're on game three, get a bunch of friends together, you're on game three and one person can't make it, can they continue playing the game with a missing player or do they have to hold off? Um, it is possible to play without that player for that moment. Um, there's, it's, it's not really like written into part of the rules, but like right, right. You, you would be able to, to play without a character for uh, one of the sessions. In fact, so it's a cooperative game, but it plays two to four. Okay. Um, so there's four characters at max, but you can play the game through the entire campaign with just two of them if you only had two players. All right. Um, and the game's story uh, is able to sort of meld around who is in, in the story with you and who isn't. So it knows, like, it'll it'll ask you in a lot of cases, like, is someone playing this character? And if so, like, they have these options. Or if if no one's playing that character, then, like, you might unlock something else. So for instance, if you're playing through a campaign and uh, Javi, the artificer, isn't being played by anybody, Javi effectively becomes like an NPC within that campaign. Okay. And you as the players can still interact with this NPC version of Javi and he might be able to craft items for you or other things or give you more information. Um, but when you go out and do an actual adventure, you're kind of doing that without that version of Javi. Okay. But he's still a part of the story and still a part of the world. Okay. Well, that's great. I, I That was one thing that about those games that always, you know, games that are, you know, continual like that, that always bothered me was like, oh, somebody can't make it. Well, I guess we're canceling for the entire night. Uh, yeah, so that's how it's like, oh, that's a bummer. It's definitely a hard point of campaign games, especially mm -hmm. story-driven ones of, needing to to keep the same group together for the whole way through right uh, it's it's certainly a challenge what is the replayability of this game is it one of those ones where you have to buy an entire brand new game or are there just components you could repurchase uh so we actually have a recharge kit for uh artisans uh, because it is you know got the stickers and other components that kind of get destroyed over the course of play uh, we wanted people to be able to replay it without having to buy a whole extra copy of the game because right. it's a pretty big game. There's a lot in there. Um, each of those character books is close to 400 pages, if not more than 400 pages. So there, there's a lot in here. Um, but the uh, the recharge kit itself is only $15. So it just contains all of the components that will have or could have been uh, permanently changed over the course of the campaign. Okay. And you can just buy a recharge kit. You can slot in those components, replacing the ones that were changed or damaged. And you can essentially replay the entire campaign from the beginning if you want to. 
Um, and there's definitely a lot to see in the veil. Like you're not going to see everything on just a single pass through it. Great. Even just because what characters you play and what characters you don't play changes the story. So uh, even if you went through with a group of four players and you played all four characters, there are a bunch of scenes and a bunch of things that could happen within the campaign that you won't have seen specifically because all four characters were played. Whereas if you went in with two of them and then played again with the other two, some other point, you're going to see some different things that you couldn't have seen the with four players. With all of the stuff that you had doing this, how how long did this game take you? And in comparison uh, to other games, long, yeah, like because <laughs> there's so many components to it. It's it's got to be, you know, and play testing it has got to be just as just as rough, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, especially with branching narrative paths and with how long the story is. Play testing uh, took a very long time and was definitely very difficult. Uh, Artisan specifically uh, took me, I was working on it for close to three years, I think. Um, not as the only thing I was working on for most of that time, right. but yeah, three years of you know continuing to tinker with it and write for it and design new things for it and uh, everything else that went into it. Uh, it's a very large game and uh, I really hope that people enjoy you know, all of the the fun little moments that we were able to put into it, but it definitely took a lot longer than some other games that I've made. Uh, I think Dragon Holt also took quite a while, although it didn't take nearly as long as Artisans, but any any game that has a lot of writing and narrative like that, especially mm-hmm. with branching paths, it just takes a long time to get all of it right. Each of the characters are Artisans, um, and thus the name of the, the game, right? Mm-hmm. What kind of what kind of encounters do they come across? Because obviously there's got to be some sort of like, ver- like I don't want to say versus some sort of like antagonist type things that you have to come across. So is there like battles in the game, or are they just you know coming across challenges as um, you know like you've got to you know do things as art their artisans. So like you've got to you know maybe build a shop or stuff like that. What kind of challenges? do they face when they come across challenges? Yeah, it's some of both. Okay. Um, so they, they are artisans. So this is a fantasy setting, but it's more of a, a modern fantasy. Um, like it's a brand new world that I created uh, to tell these stories in. So you do have stuff like magic and magical items and you know fantastical creatures and things. Uh, but also like at the end of the day, they go back to their, their the city where they live, where they have... Uh, you know, apartment buildings and coffee shops and trains and stuff. So it's not like um, like a D&D or something like that, where right. it's or, or Lord of the Rings, where it's just like kind of this high fantasy medieval type setting. Um, but yeah, as artisans, they, you know, they have their own careers and the things that they are creating for their for their communities. And you get to tell those stories as part of the game as well. But most of the adventures, when you're out in the Vale and exploring different things, a lot of those will incorporate um, sort of tactical grid-based combat scenarios, or at least action scenarios. They're not necessarily all combat. They're, uh, in some cases, like chase scenes or trying to escape crumbling buildings or other things like that. Um, But yeah, there are some antagonists out in the Vale. Um, the, The story does include 
some themes of like, you know, people coming in and sort of invading the area and trying, you kind of have to figure out how to deal with this. Um, but there's also just, the Vale is, is sort of an untamed and, and wild place. So there's a lot of creatures out there that might be territorial um, and you might, you know, come across them and not have a way uh, to, to get away immediately and have to kind of, you know, protect yourselves or you might be asked to escort, um, you know, researchers or other people that are trying to travel through the Vale and, you know, protect them from the dangers. Or in some cases, you're helping to, you know, reestablish connections between communities or rebuild, um, like, uh, just different structures and bridges and things and, and just kind of helping the people of the, of your community. Okay. They have, so they have the character, individual character advancement, and those are in their individual book booklets, right? Mm -hmm. Do, are there other advancements? Obviously you talked about like fixing bridges and doing stuff like that, but does the veil also advance? Do they help like grow it or, or have get other boons, things external from their personal characters that help them along? Uh, yes. So aside from like, you know, you're gaining skills over the course of things, or you're able to use your different crafts to create potions or different items or armor or whatever it is that you're uh, making for yourselves. Uh, you're also, so there's this whole system in it called interludes that are sort of the, the smaller stories, the smaller personal stories that happen in between your adventures. Okay. And part of those interludes includes, um, like different things can change around the world over time or different decisions that you've made on your adventures or in previous interludes will come back up. Um, and they'll they'll like affect the story going forward essentially. So like if you go out and you help a community, those community members interacting with you through the interludes is something that can then occur. Whereas okay. if you hadn't gone and helped them yet, you can't get those okay. additional stories. Awesome. So the game uh, finished up on Kickstarter and mm -hmm. hit all of the stretch goals. Uh, and I don't know how much, you know, how much of uh, the Kickstarter you're, you're part of, or if you're just the game designer and the company, you know, did the Kickstarter, but how much of the, um, how much of the stretch goals, cause they got all the stretch goals. How many of the stretch goals are going to be in the, you know, say I go out and pre-order the game now, how much of the stretch goals will be in the pre-order? Is it just like, if you did the Kickstarter, that's the only place you're getting stretch goals? Uh, I believe, I believe it's everything that's in the stretch goals should be in future pre-order copies of the game as well. Okay. Um, there's some things that aren't like quote unquote part of the game right. that were also included in the Kickstarter. For instance, there are some plushies that right. are there. Uh, you can pre-order the plushies as well. They'll be available to, to purchase, but like they're not. They don't just come with the game. You can you can uh, purchase them separately. How big are the plushies? I'm just curious. Um, like are they dog toy size we, or we are actually, they like teddy bear size? Yeah, they're like teddy bear sized. Um, okay. We have the measurements of them on the actual Kickstarter page. I, I believe some of them are like up to ten inches or maybe a little bit more than that in different dimensions. 
Excellent. And we'll try and get those all that information on our show notes. Um, our mods are in the live stream, are posting a lot of the links for us as well, so they can everybody can find all of that information there. Uh, so let's talk about the other thing that you just, you know, because obviously that's on pre-order. Artisans of Splendid Veil is on pre-order or ready to be pre-ordered. But we mm-hmm. were talking about Quirky Circuits earlier, and you're coming out with an expansion for Quirky Circuits, yes? That's right, yeah. Um so there is a, a new, actually, it's not even technically an expansion. It's a standalone uh, box. Uh, it's called uh, Penny and Gizmo's Snow Day. And it is a smaller box than the original one was. Okay. So it's only $20. So it's nice and easy to, to be able to pick up. It's all new content. So there's no overlap at all with oh, okay. the original game. And you don't need to own the original game to to pick this up. It is standalone, so you can just pick this up as the first entry point into Quirky Circuits if you've never um, gotten to play it or purchase it before. Uh, and it is, yeah, it's it's available for pre-order now, and it's also going to be available in Barnes and Noble uh, very shortly. For anyone that's watching this beyond the release date of the podcast, <laughs> you know, it's already in stores. Okay, what uh, what is the kind of the difference? between the two like obviously why if somebody had the first one what would ins- what would get them to go hey i should get the second one as opposed to saying i've got the first one i don't need the second one yeah uh it's so it's all brand new content so if you enjoyed either of them picking up the other is going to let you just play the game more uh but also penny in this box is a new robot that didn't appear in the original game okay so all of her uh, levels, all of the challenges that she brings to it are completely new, and you won't have seen them before. Uh, Gizmo is the same Gizmo that appeared in the first game, but the levels are brand new. So if you enjoyed playing as Gizmo in the previous one, or if you enjoyed playing Gizmo in this in Snow Day, uh, picking up the other one will give you even more levels for that robot to play as well. How many different robots are in the two games? So in Snow Day, there's just Penny and Gizmo because okay. uh, it's a much smaller box. Okay. Um, and they each have uh, five scenarios, and there's a lot of fun replay value of div- of each of those scenarios. They're a little bit challenging, um, and of course, the farther into the game you get, the more challenging they become. Okay. Um, but it's also just great replay value with like different teams of people um, playing, and it's a game that you can you can really get anyone, you know to play it. It's a, a very low um, barrier to entry. So you can you know, play with your kids, you can play it with your parents, you can play it with random friends that maybe don't play board games that often. Uh, they'll, I'm sure they'll like it. Um, in the other box, though, there's four robots. Um, and I think we did, I think it was 24 scenarios. It's been a while since that one came out, but I think it's 24. Um, so there's a little bit more content in that one, uh, but that is, of course, a more expensive box. Right. Speaking of, you know, ages, do you tend to target a certain age category with the games you design? Uh, I don't. Um, I know, like, a lot of my, like, artisans and, and quirky have more kind of cutesy art. Um, right. They're very, uh, they're very colorful, very fun and kind of cartoony, mm-hmm. um, but... I'm not specifically targeting a younger audience. Um, they're kind of just aesthetics that I think really fit the things that I've created. Right. Uh, but I've tried to put a lot of 
you know, different strategy and story and everything else into my games. So there's something there, uh, hopefully for everyone. Right. Um, as far as challenge okay. level, would you say that there's a certain age, you know, better for certain ages based on challenge for some of the games? I would say that in Quirky Circuits, you're going to get a different play experience out of uh, playing with young children versus playing with all adults. Okay. Um, it's not necessarily that it's too challenging uh, for younger kids. It's just sort of a different mode of how you're going to be playing the game. Right. Um, there's a lot of strategy in Quirky Circuits that's not immediately evident. And if you're playing with all adults, uh, or you're playing with children who are able to kind of take the time and, you know, focus on that strategy and kind of like work through it, you're going to be able to um, play through those levels with a lot more finesse than you might be able to with a player who isn't taking that time to kind of analyze the strategy. Because right. Quirky Circus does get a little bit chaotic at times um, it, by design. Right. Um, so it, uh, it, it's just kind of two different modes of playing. Like one, yeah. one way is, hey, let's try to play this the most efficiently as we possibly can. And the other way is, hey, let's slap down a bunch of cards and see what happens. Right. Um, right. And both modes of play are, are fun and you'll, you'll get a lot of really fun moments out of them. Um, but you, you might get those two different styles of play depending on what uh, other players you're playing with. Right. And I think a lot of the things, you know, as I said with, with Robo Rally, was that when you're playing a game, I've seen where kids, they just want to see the chaos. They don't care if they win or mm -hmm. lose. They just want to see the chaos. They just want to see the stuff and have fun. Uh, so yeah. I can totally see where that's would be a very equivalent thing for this, where they just want to see the robots bounce around. <laughs> Yeah, and that and that's definitely like an intended part of the design of Quirky Circuits. Uh, whenever I've seen people playing it at conventions or you know demo tables or anything, everyone's having a great time. They're all laughing, and it doesn't really matter if they're winning or losing. They're right. always having a good time. And I think that's what's most important about games is people having fun. Like if, as long as if I can win all the time, but if I don't enjoy the game, it's winning's not necessarily the end all be all. Uh, that's just my opinion, mm -hmm. but yeah, and I, I think that's kind of true of most um, players that like to play co-op games, and a lot of co-op game designs are that way, where mm -hmm. whether you're winning or losing, the game still needs to be fun. So, like, right. uh, especially if you think some of my, you know, Cthulhu Mythos-looking games like Eldritch Horror and, and Mansions and stuff, those are also about that story and that kind of building tension and even when you lose, especially when you lose catastrophically, it's still a really fun experience. Right. And it's this story you got to share with your friends. Um, and while beating it is certainly a very satisfying, like, yeah, we did that. Uh, even when you lose, you still have a great experience for it. Right. Well, I want to switch gears. We talked earlier mm -hmm. about how you kind of started off in video games and you're a Twitch streamer as well. And you, I, that's <laughs> yeah, how that, very, uh, I, I, I found you on Twitter, uh, probably a year or two ago, uh, as a game designer, when I was going through going, what kind of guests can I have on? I, I really want to, you know, cause there's a lot of, there's, there's a lot of the same type of people. I could get the same people on all the time, but I, I wanted, I really wanted to get 
a more broad spectrum of people on so I can kind of encompass everything. Epic Realms is all about the multiple realms and multiple personalities and multiple people and, and covering everything. And uh, I ran across your page. It's like, man, this person's going to be perfect. And uh, then I saw that you had a, a Twitch stream and I was like, great. So I followed it. And then it's like, hmm, there's not a lot of, not a lot of stuff. And then all of a sudden you just started popping up pretty regularly on Twitch. And I hopped in a couple of times and we got to chatting and uh, you've, you know, you're on fairly regularly now, what once or twice a week now. Yeah. I usually do do twice a week. Um, and I'll sometimes pop in for extra streams here and there. What kind of content are you, are you currently working on? Uh, so currently I've been playing through uh, Spirit Fair, which is a very lovely story game um, where you are sort of uh, helping these spirits in the afterlife sort of move on and, uh, you know, helping them kind of make peace with their lives and everything. Uh, it's very, very wholesome. It's really sweet. And it's got some beautiful animation and art. Uh, one of the key selling points that immediately got me interested is there's a unique hug animation for each different character in the game. Okay. So you can give a lot of really great hugs. <laughs> that's awesome. <laughs> it's, it's very cute and very fun. Oh, um, that's great. But I've also been playing through uh, Breath of the Wild lately, mm -hmm. Legend of Zelda Breath of the Wild. Uh, it's just one of my all-time favorite games. There's so much in there to explore and kind of just run around and do. So I've been having a lot of fun playing through that lately as well. Uh, but otherwise, I play a number of different games. I've tried out a couple of different story games that I'm going to be coming back to eventually. And I do occasionally uh, play some of my prototypes on there as well. So for people that are are following me and follow me on Twitter, you'll occasionally notice that I, I do stream some of the games that I'm working on. So you might get a nice sneak peek or something or might get to uh, even join me on stream and play test uh, some of my games. Which is amazing and really cool. Did you, uh, did you, are you finding Twitch to be a little bit more fun now that you've been doing it for a while as opposed to when you first started? Uh, yeah, for sure. When I first started, I was definitely very intimidated. I didn't really know, you know, what I was doing. I was sort of just using it as an excuse to get myself to play video games a bit more because yeah. I'd sort of fallen out of being able to do that. Yeah. Um, but giving myself that kind of time to do that as let me see uh, a number of different games that I probably wouldn't have otherwise been had the chance to play. Uh, and I've definitely, you know, met a number of people that I'm really happy to have met and uh, been able to play games with. Awesome. Are you planning on doing, um, doing more, uh, 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 more, multiplayer games and I'm not talking like your board games and stuff but I mean like video games that are like multiple people working together or against each other depending uh is that a, a plan down the road at all yeah absolutely I'm actually hoping to sort of build up my my viewership a bit and then be able to play more multiplayer games um okay. potentially you know pulling people out of the audience and being able to play co-op games with them okay awesome well you are on Twitch. It's twitch.tv slash balanced breakfast, like balanced, but with a, the letter V. Uh, mm -hmm. You are also on Twitter at valens116. That's correct. 
Awesome. Do you have any other appearances, uh, projects that we didn't cover that you have coming up, stuff you're working on that you can talk about? I know you mentioned you were like, ah, there's some things, but I got to check to see what I can talk about. <laughs> uh, there, there's always stuff in the works, um, but as is the case with most uh, game design things, most of it is uh, under wraps until much closer to release. Uh, so I can't really talk about too many things. There are some of my personal games that like, I haven't uh, sold to a publisher or anything like that, and those are the ones that I am able to still play uh, on Twitch or do more open play testing with. Okay. Uh, I don't have anything to say about them right now, but if you follow me on on Twitch and Twitter, if anything that I do have to say about them, you'll be able to see that. Excellent. Do you have any upcoming appearances, other shows you're going to be on, podcasts, uh, conventions, um, anything like that? Not that I can remember right now. I'm still laying low on conventions for right. a little while here. Um, I have been taking a break since the start of the pandemic. Right. Uh, and... I'm still not feeling quite safe enough to venture out into a uh, a room filled with people. <laughs> <laughs> I totally understand that. I, I I feel that. There have been a couple where I was like, God, I really want to go, but I really, nope, nope, not going to. And most mm -hmm. of the guests have been like that, where they're like, nope, I'm I'm sorry. And at the beginning of the pand, when I, you know, at the beginning of the pandemic, I was asking people this, and I, every time I'd ask, and as soon as I'd ask, I'm like, that's a dumb question. We're in the middle of a pandemic. <laughs> <laughs> but at least now it's a little bit more possible that you might be doing something. Uh, of course, you'll be on Twitch. So mm -hmm. people can find you there. Well, exactly. I want to thank you for joining us. It's been awesome. And I appreciate yeah, your time spent chatting with the, us about your games and about your thoughts on games in general. It's It's been pretty awesome. We will uh, we'll stick around and we'll get to some... Um, some of our live stream guest chats here in a minute. For those listening to the podcast, I want to let you know coming up in two weeks, March 21st, from Discovery Plus's Paranormal Night Shift, the host of Darkness Radio, Tim Dennis. He's been doing Darkness Radio for 16 years, and we will talk about his experiences and all things paranormal. So join us for that. March 26th, a little bit something different on our Twitch stream only. We're going to be doing our first GM's Game Masters workshop. We're going to have Ed Greenwood, Eric Scott DeBee, and Chris Jackson on to talk about game mastering, running games, maybe asking questions. We'll have a couple topics to talk about. So if you want to be a GM, you want to learn how to role play, anything like that, that'll be the stream for you to come in on. But that's going to be stream only. So you'll have to jump in on our Twitch and watch that live stream. We will uh, likely get that up on YouTube down the road. Um, April 4th, New York Times bestselling author Kirsten White will be joining us. She wrote the Paranormal C series, Conqueror Saga, Combat Rising, Slayer, Star Wars Padawan. The list goes on and on. And we're going to be talking about her upcoming book, Hide. It's going to be really awesome. Uh, April 18th, our rescheduled date for audiobook narrator Luke Daniels. A lot of people were asking me if he was okay. Everything is fine. He is better. He's going to be rejoining us. We got the date scheduled. And it's April 18th. He is one of the most prolific audiobook narrators of all time. Over 600 novels under his belt. Hall of Famer, multiple awards, you name it, he's done it. So that will be April 18th. So make sure you follow and subscribe, rate and review. These help us tremendously. It gets, gets eyes on us. And that way we can get eyes on our guests' products and all of their things. So for Nikki Valens, I am Nick. Thank you so much for listening to Epic Realms. Well, there you are. 
I hope you enjoyed yourselves. And I do hope that you come back and join us again for Epic Realms. <laughs> <laughs>